of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 192. This will be the last show of the year. So I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded year ahead. Uh, we have new music. Alex Michael from Conspiracy Music Guru, who you met a couple episodes ago, was aware that everyone liked the original music I used. And I dumped it because they copyrighted somebody who ran a couple seconds of it when they had me on their show. And I'm not playing that game. Anyhow, he offered to write something in the same vein, and we have three versions. So you'll hear a, a short intro, a break part, and then the full-blown song at the end of each episode now. Thank you to Alex Michael and from Jason, Rose, and Crow. We hope for a very positive, healthy, and happy 2020. There it is. Let's jump in. We're going to cover directors from Hollywood involved in propaganda. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 192. I believe this might be the last episode of the year if we don't rearrange the order in which we release. Jason Lingren is with me. And we're going to go at a thing which I've been looking at for quite a while. Um, some of the directors from Hollywood during the World War II era. It's interesting in as much as come December 7th or certain days, they used to play all these films like Midway or the Pearl Harbor military produced films, which were Hollywood directors, by the way, and they used to never say boo. Well, I started questioning the veracity of these things, uh, questioning are, are they propaganda, which I could tell they were as I began to study them. And then lo and behold, two years later, they began running them at similar times of the year and labeling the films as propaganda finally. And you've got to understand, when these things went into theaters back in the day and other places, this was meant to come off as a factual covering of what was going on in the theater of war. But we'll get more into this. Welcome, Jason. And a fine good afternoon it is to you. So we're kind of recording way in the front here. Is there anything we want to mention or do you want to just dive in here? Um, I think we're going to cover Ford. Is Capra going to come up in this? We actually have five directors we're going to be discussing with this. Okay. Um, and I noted, and here's another thing before we jump in. Uh, it's interesting when you get to November 22 and you don't see any JFK stuff this this happened this year, and it's the first time I can remember this not being covered. And the same thing happened as we passed December 7th. There was none of this. And previously, the last time around, they actually labeled these things as propaganda, but in a way that was not obvious. They said we're, they would announce on like the, the Turner Classics channel or something like that, we're going to run films that are now labeled as propaganda, but on the titles and on the listings, it didn't say anything to indicate so what I'm saying is, is the entire audience was not seeing this admission. It was very underhanded. Um, and it's a hell of a thing. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember the history of the Smith-Munt Act, Jason. But if I'm not mistaken, that came around during World War II to supposedly prevent uh, Americans from being propagandized by media. So we may have to go back and look at those ideas, too. Absolutely. A very important concept, of course, that is no longer in effect. We can be propagandized against as much as anyone pleases. That's right. You can turn on the news and they can make up anything they want out of whole cloth. And they have violated no so-called fictitious law uh, at this point. It's a bit hard to believe, but I believe it was our last so-called president who rescinded the supposed protections of the Smith-Munt Act, preventing the propagandizing, if that's a word, of, uh, of Americans on their own soil. So, we ready to begin this. 
Let's do it, John Ford, but that wasn't his name, was it? No, it wasn't. John Ford was born on February 1st, 1894 in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, and lived until August 31st, 1973, passing away in Palm Desert, California. His birth name, however, was Sean Aloysius Feeney, Fierna, or O'Feeney, the son of Irish immigrants. His grandmother was said to be a member of an impoverished gentry family called the Morrisseys of Spidal, who are currently headed by a Lord Killinan. A gentry family, by loose definition, refers to people of good social position connected to landed estates, upper levels of the clergy, and gentle families of long descent who never obtained the official right to bear a coat of arms. They could be considered minor nobility, as opposed to families which hold hereditary peerage, who are often called major nobility. (laughs) So here's my thing, man. Um, If we look at one of the other directors that we're going to cover, it's Capra, right? He doesn't try to cover up the fact that he's Italian. Um, But for some reason, John Ford takes on one of the most famous names, Ford, of course. That's been a big name in this country for quite a while by the time uh, he starts broadcasting it in public, I would imagine. But we have Feeney. Fierna, there's there's a good name for someone who's going to create war propaganda, and Ophini. So it's not even wholly clear by reading some of this what his actual name was. I mean, did you did you get a sense that you actually know what his name was, Jason? I saw all three used, which is why I put it in there, but Feeney is the one I saw the most. So my my whole thing is, is if that's your family name and your minor nobility, why are you hiding it? Why do you got to become John Ford when your name is actually Sean Aloysius something? Fierna, probably. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In 1914, after failing the entrance examination to the United States Naval Academy due to poor eyesight and other health-related issues, the not-quite-yet-John Ford moved out to Hollywood to work with his brother Francis after deciding against attending the University of Maine on a football and track scholarship. Francis had taken the stage name Francis Ford, and he was an actor, director, and screenwriter. Sean Aloysius began calling himself Jack Ford, and from 1914 to 1917 did work as an actor, assistant director, prop man, and stuntman. This would have been in the days of silent films. In 1917, he directed his first film called The Tornado. It was a two-reel film, and it was for Universal Pictures. In 1920, he switched from working with Universal to Fox, which doubled his earnings. In 1923, he switched his stage name to John Ford, and in 1924, he had his first hit film, which was a Western called The Iron Horse. With this film, he put his reputation on the line for efficiency and no-nonsense, with the production going considerably over budget, as well as apparently having a lot of scheduling issues. Despite pressure coming down from the studio, he finished it, and it became a huge success, both financially and critically. Altogether, Ford made over 60 films in the silent era, many of which were westerns. His first talkie, as films with sound came to be called, was in 1929, and it was called The Black Watch. 29, huh? Two and nine there. But there's a couple things that I've got to mention here. People may be thinking, why the heck are we covering these old directors? Well, here's why. Ford basically invents everyone's idea of what the West, the Wild West in America was. And it's not true. None of it's true. It's a mythological, romanticized, violentized version of a history that most of us know nothing of. This is the importance of film. 
Um, and he's known for this. But what's more is let's go back. We were just told that he couldn't get into the Naval Academy because of poor eyesight and other health-related issues. Then in the very same bio, they tell us that he decided not to be a football and track scholarship guy. Those two things don't go together. If you can't get into the Navy because of health and eyesight, how the heck can you do a football and track scholarship at the University of Maine? So you can see what goes on here. A critical eye catches all these things. But the main point here is, uh, I'll ask a simple question. Does anyone listening feel like they have an accurate idea of the history of the period of time that we call the Wild West in the United States? And that's even telling, because I don't even know what to call it. I'm calling it a fake thing, the Wild West. Well, this is the man with credited, which is credited with not only creating John Wayne from scratch, but inventing our whole concept of what the founding of the Western United States was about. I mean, what would you add there, Jason? Yeah. Well, let's start with the fact that the Wild West wasn't that far in the past as of this point when you're talking about the 1910s into the 1920s. So there were plenty of people still around who could say what the West was actually like. So I'm wondering how they were able to put up something that was a little more fantastical than the reality. And it flew. It was people were fine with it. So I've, I was curious about that while doing this research. But as the years went by, John Ford's depiction of what the Wild West was kind of became almost a caricature of itself until you get all the way up into the 50s and 60s, where it's really almost like this comic book-like presentation. Right. And it was all, when I was young, there was a period of time during the initial runs of the wonderful world of Disney, where every kid had a coonskin cap and a holster with a fake little six-shooter. Um, Cowboys and Indians was the biggest thing for young people at that point, based on what we're talking about. But, you know, recently they ran a bio supposedly covering the history of John Ford, who, by the way, would never be interviewed. Um, they have a few clips, but uh, whoever they're looking at there is really not being interviewed. He refuses to say much of anything. But what got me was in this biopic, they tried to hold Ford up as, well, yeah, he made up a false history that we all think is true now, but it's a good mythology. But he cared about the Indians, and you can tell it by this film and this, and I beg to differ. Many of those films is it's the Cowboys against the Indians, and we know who was here first, and we know how the latter were treated. So even now, um, I'm not down. It's a spinning of a yarn to get you to accept things that on the face of it can't possibly be true, at least from my point of view. Ford proved able to satisfy the expectations of producers and audiences alike while adding his small, unique touches to his films, whether it be gritty or sentimental, that gave them an extra human dimension that was often lacking in the what is considered generic programming of the day. This element of his filmmaking capabilities would be put to interesting use once the Second World War broke out. All right. Um, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun because uh, the first time I looked at these notes, Jason, was was a little while ago. But this is the point. When you look at some of the Ford films, um, they're sweeping. Like you go to Monument Valley and there's these beautiful American West, you know, landscapes. But he also had a tendency to put the camera up close on the characters, making them more personable. Or I don't even you know what I'm getting at. But this is the thing. As we get into the war, and I, I'm probably going to jump the gun a little bit with what I'm going to say, but we'll cover it again. Um, I watched Midway and uh, and Pearl Harbor, those two supposed, they were called documentaries at the time. I don't know if they still are. And they're not. 
the propaganda. And there's no real combat in any of them. One of them, it's claimed he's injured, but how can that be? There's no no real combat going on. But in the bios that now try to get you to accept whatever they're saying about this man, um, he is actually on the record uh, during combat, I think it was midway, telling his cameraman, don't bother filming the combat. We'll fake that later. Just get their faces. And this is what we're talking about. That is absurd. Of all the things that are going on where there's a camera, there's one thing that could never be replicated again. That's the combat. You could get the faces anytime you want. Um, but this is this is the illusion. And so I'll ask a simple question. If this man was credited with inventing a false history of what we now call the Wild West, then what do you suppose is going on when World War, you know, the Second World War breaks out and he's put into his own unit? But I know Jason has quite a bit to add about this. Yes. And as far as Midway, we actually have quite a bit to break down with that, which we'll be getting to shortly. But in 1927, John Ford had traveled to Germany. He was shooting background footage for his film, Four Sons. While there, he met the expressionist director, F.W. Murnau. Ford's directorial techniques are normally called naturalism, but he would use the expressionistic style in his film, The Informer, from 1935. Are you familiar with any of this? I'm not, I I think of, I've probably seen most of the films over my lifetime, but not The Informer. Are you familiar with it at all? Not that film in particular, but the style changes are something that he would make use of later. Well, it's, you know, here, here's another thing to point out. This is like pushing towards a science, isn't it? You know, well, they're going to they're gonna have ideas and labels uh, going from expressionist to something else, to naturalism, to these character-driven things. Um, and, you know, as we get forward, this, the story of the creation of John Wayne is quite a thing. Um, and we'll have quite a bit to add. Uh, I remember when I was young, John Wayne's last film um, was quite a film at the time, to me, as a young person. But let's keep going. Once the era of the talkies came to be, Ford made another 60-plus films. This format had to be approached differently, with acting styles changing radically as the years rolled by. This would, of course, horrendously date a film, and many of his films that were held in very high regard during their time are now not looked upon as favorably as many of his westerns. Yeah, uh, in one of the bios, there were claims that a lot of it had been lost. And, you know, I always find these things hard to believe when you have an industry like Hollywood letting letting actual... Well, what are you doing in Hollywood? You're making films. That is your product. So how is it that you let your products rot and disappear on a film? I always have trouble with this. And they're always asking the, the public, oh, please help poor Hollywood save all these films. It, it rings hollow to me, Jason, to be completely honest. But let's, as we move forward, let's understand that uh, Ford's first so-called talkie is in 1929. Go ahead and count the ways real quick. Um, You're going to need one extra toe or finger to count the ways. Uh, Let's keep going. Yeah, John Ford had made 60-odd films in the silent era, and a lot of them, not just his films, but a lot of people's in general, were kind of considered throwaways, in a sense, where they'd be shown and that's it. This is the general reason given why so much is missing. People have been finding them over the years. They would find a reel or two or so of stuff that was from that era. But generally speaking, nobody really cared. They were made, they were sold, they got what little they could out of them, and then moved on. And that was that. 
some of it's logically acceptable for me, Jason. Like sometimes the film stock would be really flammable or really able to deteriorate and far enough back that maybe there wasn't the easiest way to replicate them in any way. Um, not sure. I haven't looked at it, but on the face of it, some of the arguments are acceptable. But with John Ford, a lot of this is not acceptable to me because this man becomes big, quick. Not only is he big, he creates the whole impression we have of our of the history of our own country which is made up out of whole cloth and then he's hired into his own unit to go do the same thing for world war ii to get the american public to believe whatever hollywood wants them to believe you would imagine that once he started to be that well known that everything he ever did would all of a sudden have more value than it ever did and by the way i will point out once again what does hollywood do it makes movies so you make a product that you then throw on a shelf somewhere and let it just rot i mean that could happen some of the time but you know i'm just saying so now that we have some back history let's get into john ford and his legacy as a director of westerns both in the silent era and in the later talkies Ford directed many two- and three-reel westerns for Universal Studios that starred the popular actor of the time, Harry Carey, from 1917 to 1921. Carey made 25 films in the silent era with Ford, and he played a recurring character named Cheyenne Harry, who epitomized the good-bad man figure, what in modern terms might be called an anti-hero, that John Wayne would later play in multiple Ford films. In fact, many of the on-screen traits that were personified by Harry Carey, Ford would later instill into John Wayne. And this is a big idea um, that I kind of put together on my own uh, because I noticed John John Wayne was the typical. And in public, he was always viewed as very right-wing and conservative. On the screen, he was the tough guy. And in Harry Carey, we have the bad good guy idea. Well, if you go back and look at Ford movies, quite a Quite a number of times, they'll have people like Jimmy Stewart. So he pairs John Wayne with Jimmy Stewart. So here's this idea done over many times where Jimmy Stewart's kind of the passive, not the man's man, and John Wayne's in the same film being the man's man. So this juxtaposition starts apparently with Harry Carey, where the idea of the good bad guy, and then these two ideas are split apart, where you literally have a man's man and not a man's man, who are both huge names in Hollywood being put into use in these films. A great example of this anti-hero figure played by Harry Carey is in the film Straight Shooting that was released in 1917. The storyline is that Cheyenne Harry is recruited to run off a family of settlers from their land and to kill them if necessary. Harry has a crisis of conscience when he witnesses the father of the settler family burying his murdered son, causing him to switch sides, with him eventually gunning down Placer Fremont, the outlaw leader who murdered the young boy. There is an example towards the end of the film of Harry Carey's trademark gesture of holding his right arm just above the wrist, a gesture that is referenced by Wayne as he stands framed in the doorway of the cabin at the end of The Searchers. Apparently, there were two different versions of straight shooting. One has Harry riding off into the sunset, a cliché of many westerns. The other version, released later on in the 1920s, ended with Harry getting the girl, who was the sister of the murdered boy. This picture was one of many John Ford films that helped to establish the notion of what the Wild West was like in the minds of the masses, even though many of the notions he injected into his many Western films were fictitious. You know, The Searchers is a good example for people who have seen this film. Um, you know, you're used to John Wayne being whatever, you know, you think of him. But in this, it's very dark. 
what Wayne is doing there is very dark, but Jason pointed out a critical thing here. Did you mention something about uh, hand gestures or signals there, Jason? Was that what you mentioned? Yes, indeed. So why don't you just mention that one more time? Because um, quite often what happens is people watch the scenery, uh, the storyline, and they miss so much communication, don't they? Right. So in this film, there is an example toward the end of it of Harry Carey's trademark gesture of holding his right arm just above the wrist, and John Wayne would do this same gesture at the end of The Searchers. So much information in movies that the average person uh, is never going to be aware of for multiple reasons. Partially because they're not thinking that there's information that they're missing. Uh, secondarily, because they don't have the knowledge base to even understand the information if they see it, like the grabbing of a wrist. It just seems like a gesture to most people. And uh, the lastly is uh, the storyline. People get tied up. You're you're pulled in, aren't you? It's almost like a dream state. You're so tied up in the, in the telling of the tale that your mind just is not focused for detail. And movie takes a lot of advantage of this a lot. And it makes one wonder, well, who is noticing these things and who is understanding these things, if you catch my drift? Now, I have no idea if that's a gesture that actually has any meaning, say, in something like a Masonic society, but I'd be very curious to find out. Well, I, whatever conclusion you want to come to, if you take the time to do a little research on your own, this is done all the time. And it's been done all the way back to portraits of supposed royals. Um, you often see the middle finger and the ring finger and old portraits held together, making that kind of trident symbol. Um, go back and look at old portraits of upper crust families, and you'll see this over and over. And how was it that this wasn't noticed? all the time. It's a pretty, pretty obvious thing. And this is just another version of that. But, you know, I've been looking at movies and, and noticing the details for long enough to, to understand this is a good example to show people uh, things that typically get missed by someone who's tied up in the drama. Ford's first major success as a director, as we previously mentioned, was the historical drama The Iron Horse from 1924. It is called an epic account of the building of the first transcontinental railroad, it was a large, long, and difficult production filmed on location in the Sierra Nevada. The logistics of the production were enormous, almost like a major film that would be produced today. Two entire towns had been constructed, along with 5,000 extras, 100 cooks, 2,000 rail layers, a cavalry regiment, 800 Indians, 1,300 buffaloes, 2,000 horses, 10,000 cattle, and 50,000 properties, including the original stagecoach used by Horace Greeley, Wild Bill Hickok's Derringer pistol, and replicas of the Jupiter and 119 locomotives that met at Promontory Point when the two ends of the line were joined on May 10, 1869. Ford's brother Eddie was one of the crew members, and it is reported that they were constantly fighting with each other. There was also only a short synopsis written when the filming had begun, and Ford wrote and shot the film on a day-to-day -day basis. Production fell behind schedule, delayed by constant bad weather and intense cold, and Fox executives were repeatedly demanding results. Ford, being the way he was, would either tear up the telegrams or hold them up and have stunt gunman Edward Pardner Jones shoot holes through the sender's name. Despite the consistent pressure to halt production on the film, studio boss William Fox finally backed Ford and allowed him to finish the picture. 
This gamble paid off quite handsomely, as The Iron Horse became one of the top-grossing films of the decade, taking over $2 million worldwide against a budget of 280000 In today's numbers, that would be approximately a $30 million take on a $4.3 million budget. So you can tell by the end of this that it's just the, the, the weaving of a yarn, you know, oh, well, we want results and what's going on here and we're threatening to shut this down. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Uh, we were just informed that two entire towns were constructed, 5,000 extras, 100 cooks, 2,000 railway layers, cavalry regiment, I mean, goes on and on, 1,300, but this is not getting shut down. This is a serious endeavor, and you can tell just by the numbers of it. But what's more is we begin to get a glimpse into the dream factory, don't we? When you were told that one of the original stagecoaches used by Horace Greeley and Wild Bill Hilcox's Derringer pistol and replicas of the, get this, Jupiter and 119 locomotives that met at Promontory Point. Let me try to put this in perspective in a way that will fly in the modern era of you can't say that by pointing out that when the railway systems came in to the American West, it changed everything. What we think of the American West is being shaped by the very movies that we're talking about here, and it's all a false narrative. And I will invite anyone to go back to those old movies where there's trains in them all the time and look at the number on the front of the train or the side of the train and how often can you count the ways. At first, I thought it was just me, but then I realized this is beyond possible chance. You can count the ways damn near every time, with few exceptions. And here we are talking about the Jupiter, hint, 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 and the 119 locomotives, hint, hint, hint. Um, so I'm just saying that even the narratives that look backwards are still spinning a yard. There was no intention of walking away from this. They built towns. They had thousands of extras, hundreds or thousands of buffaloes, horses, 50,000 properties. Come on. So what? If you don't show me results, we're going to walk away from this? Not likely. Um, and it tells you also something about John Ford. For someone to be trusted with this much, let's just call it capital, uh, you have to be a pretty important guy, I would say. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Well, how could they have not known? Right. What was going to be involved right from the get go? I mean, it's not like he could order these things once they were already on location. I mean, there had to have been some sort of understanding of what was going to entail. You know, it's kind of like shooting a Star Wars movie. You have to scout out the locations. You have to have everything ahead of time to be ready because you're doing exotic locations and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it would have been the same thing back then, obviously not to the massive extent that people do things today, but still, these things would have had to have been accounted for for the money to be allocated in the first place. Now, sure, he could go over budget and things like that. Those kinds of things happen on films all the time. But the initial huge chunk that would have been necessary had to have been accounted for right up front. That's right. There's no getting away from it. And that also tells you another thing, that the intended take on the back end is significant to have put that much money into it in the first place. In other words, you don't tell someone to go build two towns, railroad tracks, and make an army and do all these things, not understanding that the expected return on the backside is many times what you put into it. So I'm with you all day long, Jason. This is, this is a false narrative. This is a business endeavor, and it's going to be treated like a business endeavor. And just because it's the dream factory, why would we think any differently about it? I would think with something of this scale, it would have taken months to do the pre-production to have it ready to start shooting. Well, here's another thing. So they want us to accept here that he didn't even have a script. 
He's waking up every morning and deciding what he's going to film. Is that a reasonable thing to accept? There's two two possibilities here. This man is so respected and such a genius that we can trust whatever he wakes up with in his head or the truth that there had to have been an outline and a vision to put this much into it. Which one of those two things is more likely? Well, they had a, an outline, I think. I took it from the things I read about this film. They just didn't have a pounded out page-for-page script like is pretty much expected nowadays. Now, I'm sure in this day and age, if someone like a Steven Spielberg wanted to do something like this, even though I doubt very much he would, I think they could get away with it, but not when there's this much money involved. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Well, I'm just saying, so the claim here is the budget in today's money would be $30 million. Um, I, you know, this, this was always a business. This was always what it was about. If they didn't make the money, they couldn't keep doing what they were doing. Um, and so I think logically, I would just assume that in any given decision-making process here, it's going to be treated like any other business. Um, you're going to have a plan for a product, you know, and walk it through like you would expect. I just have a hard time buying that they're going to give someone this much money, do do this number of things and just say, yeah, go ahead as you make it up, as you wake up every morning. And by the way, we haven't even gotten into the fact where apparently uh, this man was demonized by alcoholism to a point that's quite, quite jarring, actually. Yes, he was quite known as a partying guy, but not generally on the job. But I do mention that in the notes. John Ford had been a successful director for over a decade when he had met a young man named Marion Morrison. At the time, Marion was a young USC student working a summer job on the Fox lot as an assistant property man. Ford saw something in Morrison and gave the kid a few walk-ons in his films, the first being Mother McCree in 1928. Marion was an uncredited extra. Within two years, Marion Morrison had changed his name to something quite familiar to most people, John Wayne. John Ford was quite pleased with the young John Wayne's work, and he recommended him to Raoul Walsh, another director on the lot. Walsh was about to start one of the biggest films Fox had produced up to that point, The Big Trail, and the director gave John Wayne the lead. The film unfortunately flopped, and John Wayne's career was quickly relegated to grade C westerns on what was considered Poverty Row. This was a situation many felt John Ford could have stepped in to remedy, but over the next decade, all the struggling young actor heard was that Pappy, which was John Ford's nickname, was keeping an eye out for a script that would best suit The Duke, with The Duke being Ford's affectionate nickname for John Wayne. As Wayne's career stalled, Ford's career continued to soar. He was now one of the biggest directors in Hollywood, but the two men stayed friends with the clear understanding of who was the boss. Oh, God, there's so much here. Where do we even start? Uh, so here here we have, again, the typical thing that always goes on where the stage name idea is going to come on. It's a little weird for a director back in this day to take on a stage name, I would suggest. But Marison Morrison, I don't know, maybe he's the great-granddaddy of Jim. Who knows? Point is, is this is the story of the coming of John Wayne. The first film that he's put in is 28, Count the Ways. That's a one. That's a start. That's a beginning. And then, of course, he gets the name John Wayne. But look at some of the things that they're trying to endear us with. John Ford's nickname is Pappy. Well, the Papa's in charge, isn't he? So it's not lost on anyone who Ford is or what his position in these things. And we've seen the budgets he's been trusted with. But how in the hell is John Wayne, as a C-lot, poverty row actor, being called the Duke? Is there something more? Is he really a Duke? Is there, I mean, what's going on here? 
that seems like a pretty specific nickname uh, to a man who is going to come to dominate Hollywood in my early life. Anyhow, what would you say, Jason? Well, John Wayne is definitely a much more masculine name than Marion Morse, and that's for damn sure. Right, no doubt. Yeah, and that's something that really struck me. I knew John Wayne was a stage name, but I didn't know that his real name was Marion Morrison. So that was the one thing that really jumped out at me. I was like, wow, I, I could see why he would change that. I didn't even know Marion could be used as a male name, uh, to be honest. If I'm not mistaken, one of the later actors in a Rocky film is his grandson or something. I forget. It's another Morrison or something who, who took stage. I, I'd have to look it up, but you know, words have meaning. They're calling this guy the Duke. Typically in the world, uh, a Duke is the guy right below the king. Just saying, who knows? During the next decade, John Wayne worked tirelessly in numerous low-budget westerns, sharpening his talents along the way and developing a distinct persona for his cowboy characters. Finally, John Ford gave John Wayne his big break by casting him in the lead for the 1939 western Stagecoach. John Wayne played the role of Ringo Kid, and he imbued the character with the essential traits that would inform nearly all of his subsequent screen roles. Such traits as a tough and clear-eyed honesty, unquestioning valor, and a laconic, almost plodding manner all would come to define the John Wayne that is familiar today. After the success of Stagecoach, John Wayne's acting career took off. John Wayne appeared in dozens of westerns, many of which were directed by John Ford. In all of these films, the Duke embodied the simple and perhaps simplistic cowboy values of decency, honesty, integrity, and masculinity. I gotta call contraire and poppycock. I mean, I'll go with the masculinity. That seemed to have fallen through, but let's go back to the searchers. There's nothing decent in the character that he portrays there. Um, he's murderous, and it, it comes across as almost shocking for that period of movies because of just the the full onslaught bloodlust that is is portrayed. But, you know, let's let's go back and look here. He's stagecoach. You know, why? it makes you wonder where Ringo, that name, started, right? Quite a few big famous people ended up being Ringo in the world, and there's John characters. But this is what I notice. We're supposed to remember John Wayne in a certain way, but when I did the bio on uh, Ford, they said more than once that John Wayne was not a good actor. <laughs> they actually said it in the Ford bio, and I thought that was interesting. I hadn't seen that a lot of times, but here it is in, in the things we read and the way, the way we're supposed to remember the Duke. Was he a Duke? Why is he the Duke? Uh, maybe we should look into why he's the Duke. Does anyone know his family tree, I wonder? Maybe we should have done that. But um, my, my point here is, is I can point out one of his biggest movies, which is The Searcher, and there is nothing decent, honest, or integrity going on there in his character. It's quite the contrary. And the idea that somehow John Ford had a concern for Indians, the whole idea here is that the Indians were less than people, and the person they're looking for had become an Indian, so she needs to be killed too, just to put a fine point on it. I saw an article from a writer mentioning the whole masculinity thing and how that's just not a thing of today, how that's a thing of the past. John Wayne being the very stereotypical masculine figure and how that just isn't something that's acceptable today. So I thought that was quite interesting. And it's, a, it's an apt observation, isn't it? So back in the era that we're looking at here, men are going to be men. And you're not a man if you're not masculine. Now we've come to the age of gender confusion. Right. And this is portrayed in so many ways. And of course, the whole political nonsense, whether you're red or blue, is going to play in to your perception. And this is what I'm talking about. 
this is how the groups are used to try to shape and mold what we think is correct. Um, and it's unfortunate because each human being can decide what they think is correct on their own without this nonsense. But I'm with you all day long. Uh, men were supposed to be men in this era. I lived it. I remember it. These movies were big when I was young. And now we have the polar opposite where we're not even sure what gender is anymore. And gender confusion is going to be the big topic that gets pushed of the day. It's just programming one way or the other. That's why it doesn't bother me. And that's why I don't make a distinction because I recognize it. Does it really matter whether you're being programmed this way or that way? Isn't it more important to understand that you're being programmed? John Ford developed a distinctive style with his filmmaking, as well as a reputation as a brilliant storyteller. One of his favorite places to film was in the Monument Valley region of Arizona and Utah. He spent so much time in the region that his colleagues began to call the area Ford Country. Ford's use of the territory in his films defined the image of the American West in popular culture. He is also known for using his storylines to address social issues. Ford won his first Academy Award for his Best Director in 1935 for his film The Informer. He went on to win three more Best Director Academy Awards for his films The Grapes of Wrath from 1940, How Green Was My Valley from 1941, and The Quiet Man later on in 1952. John Ford was the only director to have won four Best Director Academy Awards. He also won two more Academy Awards one for the documentary The Battle of Midway from 1942, and another for the propaganda film December 7th from 1943. As for the last two films mentioned, we will be getting there in much more detail a bit later in Hour 2. All right, well covered here, Jason. Uh, there's some things we need to say. First of all, I don't know if anyone's been to Arizona, Utah, these areas in the vicinity of Monument Valley. It's beautiful but it has little or nothing to do with the true history of how the West was settled in the United States of America. These places are desolate. In many cases, there's not a lot of water around. It's a stage drop for the stories they're going to tell, and I just want to be perfectly clear about this. But you see, Monument Valley, which plays not that large a role in the founding of the West, um, is the image that most Americans have in their mind about how the West was founded. And it's just not true. And this is the power of film. This is the dream factory at work. Um, but let's look at the awards. What is an Academy Award? Well, isn't that the insiders awarding themselves? So Ford has more of these awards, um, and they start pretty early on. And this starts to speak with what we were addressing earlier. 1935, the insiders award their own uh, with the highest award, which, by the way, most people aren't aware. Once you win an Academy Award, it means something within that group of people. You're at the top. You're the apex. You get an Academy Award, that's maybe the biggest nod that I'm aware of as an outsider. If I was an insider, I might know more, but I don't. But let's look at the last couple. The Battle of Midway, 42, and December 7th. He won actual Academy Awards, the highest award for motion pictures. They're both labeled documentaries, and neither one of them is anything like a documentary. As far as I can tell, there is no real combat in either of these films, yet for years, these, these films were shown as if it was. He's even supposedly injured by shrapnel in one of them, and it's gotten so bad that I think it's the Battle of Midway. They have a grandmother um, in the soundtrack going, oh, get these poor boys the help they deserve. Some of that's been lifted. 
by the later showings, and I would urge everyone to go. Um, the first time that I covered December 7th, I was pointing out that no, no bombs are dropping from the Japanese Zeros. They're all planted in the tarmac. And this fits with what we know he said, right, Jason? Don't bother filming the combat if their faces will fake the combat later, which is the most telling thing that could ever be put on the record. I would point out, but I had some airplane buffs in the group of people watching my content the first time I mentioned the propaganda film December 7th, and they made the claim, and I am not an airplane buff, that those were not even Japanese zeros, that it was some type of American plane painted as a zero. That's correct. That's how blatant this is. So let me put a framework around, and let me point out the difference between programming people back then and doing it now. Now... We can replay that clip as many times as we want. We can take it apart in Photoshop. We can put it in editors. We can review it endlessly. When this stuff was initially shown, not the case. No way to even record it. You get one shot. And by the way, the shot you're getting is tied up in the emotion of a world at war, as you're being told. Everything against you to be able to critically look at what you're being shown. And it has the patina of, I'm an authority on what's going on here, and we're all proud Americans. Okay. Now, when you go back and look at these now, and now they're finally starting to back off and admit it was propaganda, but it doesn't matter. It's already been established what was going on here. These two films won Academy Awards and were labeled as documentary. And I'm here to tell you it's all Hollywood specials. Why? Why do you need to do that? Pearl Harbor happened, and it, it is what we're told it is. Why do you need to fake it? I'm just saying, Jason, Battle of Midway, that's a big dang deal. I was in the Marine Corps. Battle of Midway is a big deal if for anyone who served in the military. But I'm, I'm just asking the question, why do you need to fake it, Jason? Well, for our one listeners only, we're going to break this down much more in our two. Right. There is only historically stated to be four minutes of real film from the actual bombing of Pearl Harbor. So they had to fake it if they wanted to have any kind of exciting combat of the destruction and all that on camera. Okay, that's, I'm guessing, the words that are put with this stuff now. But how do we explain away that both of these films won the highest award, an Academy Award, labeled as documentaries, when it's clear now they were using miniatures and all this stuff? My initial assessment some years ago when I did is that there's zero combat in any of it. Um, if there's claimed four minutes, then to be fair, I will need to go back and look specifically at those four minutes. But I did a pretty thorough job last time, and I served in the United States Marine Corps. I know what bombs and bullets look like. Um, so I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's dubious at best, but um, this, is, this is the kind of thing that's gone on. Um, it's propaganda, and now it's getting labeled as propaganda. But you see, little, little too little too late, this was not called propaganda when it was aired to people, and it did what it did, and there's no reversing that. And that is the problem with propaganda. Does it make it okay to propagandize people, and then years and generations later say, oh, well, yeah, okay, it was propaganda? Well, no. Those people have already had the adverse effects of living in a false reality. I'm just pointing out. Stepping back again in time to fill in some more back history, on July 10th, 1934, John Ford applied for a commission in the Naval Reserve 20 years after he had been unable to qualify at Annapolis. However, physical factors meant that the odds were against him once more. It is written about how sad an irony it was that one of the golden age of cinema's most celebrated visionaries had always suffered from terrible eyesight. 
On top of that issue, he was also plagued with chronic inflammation of the kidneys as well as dental issues. All of these conditions yielded a disqualifying Navy medical report. Biographer Joseph McBride wrote that Ford's desire to serve his country, to prove that he truly belonged to its inner circles, was so important to him that he managed to prevail over the medical examiners. Strings were pulled, and his disqualification was waived. John Ford had a lot more going for him in 1934 than he certainly had in 1914. Influential letters of recommendation poured into the office of the Secretary of the Navy. Captain Herbert Jones, Naval Reserve Director for the San Diego-based 11th Naval District, wrote glowingly of Ford's general Navy-mindedness, while Rear Admiral Frank Schofield pointed out his experience in the handling of men, interest in the Navy, and being related by marriage to the Navy. By October of 1934, John Ford had landed a commission and was made a lieutenant commander. The John Ford of 1934 had connections, fame, pull, and, not insignificantly for the United States Navy, a yacht. <laughs> okay, man, I'm looking for a flower called Pockby and a chicken called cock here. <laughs> Come on, man. We know how a typical person goes into the military, and you know how a typical person is treated. That's not the case here, is it? It's just not. And by the way, he's going into the 11th Naval District, I might point out. Um, clearly, uh, there were going to be some things changed to get this man where he needed to be. And by the way, not only is he let in, he's a lieutenant commander when he goes in. It's pretty clear what's going on here. And by the way, all of the films that are going to get made can't get made without the cooperation of the Navy. So is this story the one we should accept or is something else going on? Is there an intent here, I would ask? What would you add? He has a yacht, so clearly he's a naval man. Well, the implication here is that even in 1934, the United States government had things in mind about what was to come several years in the future. That's what I got right off the bat. I think you're right, but I mean, we're going to start to see what we could suspect are actual special units put together that didn't previously exist, right? Yes, within a few years, that is exactly what happens. And so this man, the Papa, the John Ford, the man who wove the dream state of what most people think the history of the Western United States is, is being pulled in to do a deed here. That's what it appears to be. I'm just saying that when we can show someone is treated so differently from anyone else who comes into these. And by the way, I'll spill the beans now. Does anyone understand that Jimmy Stewart was a general <laughs> during wartime? Just saying. The same summer that John Ford had applied for his Naval Reserve Commission, he met what is said to have been one of the greatest and lasting loves of his life. And this great love was the 106-foot Massachusetts-built catch called Faith. After purchasing the yacht for what was considered an insanely good price of $16,500, John Ford renamed her the Ariner in honor of the Aran Islands, ancestral home of his mother's family. He painted her green and white, and the luxuriously appointed craft became the director's home away from home. She also became his satellite office. Ford would immerse himself in research literature for upcoming projects while abroad, which put him far from the frenzied Hollywood crowd. With creative colleagues on board, scripts would be hammered out, actors paired with parts, and deals sealed. However, the Ariner became more famous as a floating frat party. When he was shooting a picture, John Ford was sober, tyrannical, and often obsessed. When he was between projects, however, Ford liked to clear his mind by ingesting copious amounts of alcohol. Stars from his unofficial stock company, such as John Wayne, Ward Bond, 
Henry Fonda and such, along with various assistant directors, screenwriters, agents, and other hard-drinking Hollywood types, would set sail with Ford to play poker, go sport fishing, and get over the top intoxicated. They are said to have stormed ashore at Mexican port towns such as Mazatlan, doing lots of bar hopping. Ford hired a mariachi band to follow them everywhere. The log of the Ariner records that John Ford, John Wayne, Ward Bond, and Henry Fonda got themselves arrested twice on New Year's Eve of 1934 in Mazatlan. The second time they were bailed out, town officials invited them to leave. However, all of the the south-of-the-border debauchery provided cover for a more purposeful aspect of Ford's yacht excursions. From 1935 to 1939, he filed intelligence reports for the United States Navy, secretly photographing shipping lane activity from on board the Ariner and snooping along the U.S.-Mexican border coastal area to scope out possible Japanese efforts to establish a presence in Baja, California. (laughs) Some researchers have contended that John Ford had been recruited even earlier by naval intelligence and had carried out recon missions in Asia, but this is less substantiated by the available military records. Ford received a letter of commendation in 1940 from the 11th Naval District Commandant for initiative in securing valuable information on California. (laughs) All right. A ray of truth attempts to shine through. Now we're beginning to see, but here's the tell, Jason. So this Hollywood, rich Hollywood director guy gets a yacht that he names after his mother's home island or some story that we're told. Um, But they didn't want to let him into the Navy because he's just not fit. He's already been turned down once because he's just not healthy. But we changed our minds. So, okay, fine. He can be a lieutenant commander and we'll make this new unit so he can make propaganda. Well, actually, we're going to get him into the intelligence divisions and he's going to be a spy. But a simple lookup of the name of his boat, the Ariner, will tell you, even on Wikipedia of all places, it was the USS and its number was the IX-57. What more do we need to say here? Are we being given a fair shake on what's going on, or is it the same old thing that's always gone on? The connections into Hollywood and the military are so blurred as to probably be non-existent. What do you think, Jason? Well, the first thing that I always thought was, I doubt very much he was put through any kind of boot camp, especially (laughs) by the time we get to 1934 and him being a famous director. I think he was handed a commission, meaning he was given a rank, but it was literally just handed to him like, nope, this is your rank so that you can hold the position. And the rank probably had something to do with whatever it was he needed to be able to do to serve the military. Well, able to boss everyone around. So a high enough rank to outrank everyone around you, I would estimate. But even your private yacht becomes the USS something, and it might have been used by intelligence services to spy uh, along the coast. And by the way, you got trouble in Mazatlan. Yeah, sure he did. Uh, It's all a backstory, and it's all a bit much. And by the way, Jason, as I was looking into Ford, there were all these accounts that he had to, he was drinking so heavily that he would black out. They were concerned about his health. and that he was put in rehab more than once, but it's not clear what these dates were. Um, But it is said that it may have happened during some of the films people know him for. Did you see anything about this? Yeah, he was very much renowned to be a massive drinker at times. And as a matter of fact, his stint during World War II was ended because of what he 
did right after the storming of the beach in Normandy. He just drank himself into oblivion for days and was so belligerent and out of his mind drunk that they were done with him and sent him back to the United States. I don't know. Is that how you drink away a guilty conscience? I guess we'll never know. But uh, we do know that what he was engaged in is making propaganda. And we do know uh, this whole story, much of which is just unacceptable. Uh, people know how the military works and how the average person going, this is an entirely different story. Um, and by the way, you're working for intelligence services on your private yacht, which now has the USS moniker put on it, um, and you want us to believe you got in trouble in Mazatlan? Sure you did. Um, it's all a big yarn, and we can see what's going on here. And I won't back off these ideas because I don't think it's cool that you give films the highest awards that are propaganda and you cover up the fact until two generations later that that's what was going on. Uh, I don't think that's okay. I think that's wrong, and I think it, it's culpable, and I think people should be called to account. Because if it's okay to just wash this under the rug, then what's going on now? But as we covered in the opening with the Smith-Munt Act have been rescinded, it's perfectly fine to do these things now. Um, and as a matter of fact, if you caught your news or someone else lying to you, as far as I know, they've broken no rule. There is no recourse. So what it comes down to is, are you a human being that's grown up enough to understand what you should understand and ignore what you should ignore? That's a lot of words, Jason, but we've had to back off so much of this because we have to be careful what we say, but I don't appreciate propaganda. What's wrong with just trying to paint some real picture of what's really going on in the world? And if you have to resort to propaganda and make up false histories of the history of a nation, why? What are you doing there? And I think people can put that together on their own. But if you can't, come join us in uh, hour two. We have free speech there all the time. Uh, we don't harm anyone, but we don't have to pull our punches and be worried about what some censor will think is correct or not correct. Uh, if you're not harming anything, free speech is correct. That's what's correct. Join us over at crow777radio.com for hour two. And we're going to get into quite a few other directors, by the way. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Crow777radio.com, by the way, that is the only true site there's some joker out there in the world who has ripped off all my content and doing bad things with a fake site that you probably don't want to visit. Anyhow, there it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. Come on.